Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy House, here with Lizzie No. Well, hey, Cindy. Hi. Before we get into our fun time chats, I uh, just want to say that if you want to keep in touch with Basic Folk, you can sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. We are on all the major platforms. I don't think we're on All of them. TikTok. Are you on TikTok? I'm on TikTok. My handle is Ask Me About Imagine Dragons. Okay. I can't believe that was available. <laughs> <laughs> Do you post regularly on TikTok? No, it, I go through phases. Like if I'm feeling very silly, I'll do some TikToks. And it's also really good for videos of my dog. Mm, great. All right. So, so it's pretty delightful. Once again, that handle is Ask Me About Imagine Dragons. And I want to make it clear it's not because I'm a fan of Imagine Dragons. It's quite the opposite. Nothing could be farther from the truth. <laughs> wow. So we have Ken Yates on the podcast today. Very excited to uh, listen to Elizabeth and Kenneth discuss uh, many different topics. Before we get into Ken, what's going on with your music? Thank you for asking, because moments before we started recording this, I was like, Cindy, this is going to be the episode where I finally remember to promote my own music. And then I promptly forgot. Um, I have new music out. Um, I have a new single out called Sweeter Than Strychnine um, on Coal Mine Records and Palmetto Street Records. If I do say so myself, it's very, very good. It's like an old school R&B soul thing. And it's my first time releasing vinyl. So I'm super proud of it. It's very fun, kind of girl groupy, kind of like Bond villainy. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. It's not exactly spaghetti western, but it has that kind of like retro. Yeah, vibe. close enough. It's very cool. Thank you, Cindy. And where where can people find that? They can stream it on any of my pages on Spotify or Apple Music. That's Lizzie No on Tidal, Spotify, Bandcamp, all of those things. Or if you go to the Coal Mine Records website, you can order the 7-inch uh, vinyl in red or black. Maybe we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah! Send me your money, I'll send you a record. I can't remember who I was interviewing one time, and they were talking about something, and then they said, oh yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. The guest said that? Yeah. That's not appropriate. I want to say it was like Dietrich or something. Yeah, it was Dietrich. Okay, Dietrich. D Dietrich Strauss. Dietrich is an honorary uh, producer of the show. We've been re-watching Grey's Anatomy. My stepson just started Grey's Anatomy season one. Oh, really? 
Imagine being 13 years old and starting Grey's Anatomy in 2022. It's a trip. His conclusion is like, it seems so amazing to be a doctor because you're in a community of so many friends. And I was like, I'm not a doctor, but I just like don't know if that's actually the accurate takeaway. But I love this for you. That is a nice takeaway. What's new with you, Cindy? Not an ad, but they opened a new Whole Foods in Pittsburgh. And I really feel like my life is worth living now. They have like, Mm -hmm. so I was really into this hop tea. It's like sparkling tea. Oh, Uh, that sounds great. The old Whole Foods would sell it by the can. This Whole Foods sells it by the case. And I am That's game changing, Cindy. Totally game game changing. changing. They also have hop water. Which I went to California earlier this year. Oh yeah, and had some hop water, Lagunitas. Like it, Lagunita, yeah. yeah. I love Lagunitas. So good, and it's like I mean, you're not drinking a beer, but it's like kind of close to drinking a beer. Close enough. Close enough. I like the uh, Lagunitas fake IPAs. I have those in my fridge. Mm. You know what? I respect that, and I respect people who like non-alcoholic beer, but like I don't think I like it. I don't really love beer in general and also like this beer kind of like doesn't get you drunk and it still kind of makes me feel like I'm drinking a beer like the next day my brother and I were talking about this one night and he was like if I drink more than two of these I have a hangover to me it's like not worth it unless it's like it's a sunny day you're sitting by the water and Mm -hmm. somebody hands you a cool na beer I feel like I don't drink more than one non-alcoholic beer I feel like it's just to have a drink yeah at my wedding, I had uh, a champagne flute full of bubbly rosé when we were, like, getting ready, and I wasn't drinking it. I was just holding it, and it was the same experience. Yes, that's so important to have, because at a wedding, people, at your wedding, people are going to hand you a lot of drinks, I imagine. My only touch point for this is being a musician, which is, I assume, the same as being a bride. Like, when it's your show and people are like, good job to you, we're here to see you, here's a free drink, it's got to be, like... Playing a show times 50. I want to actually bring up an important point. Um, when I'm at a show and the musician on stage is like, can someone get me a drink? I get mm-hmm. so anxious because I'm like, 10 people are going to get them a drink and there's going to be too many drinks. That has happened to me. Yes. Once I played this show in Chicago and not to brag, it was extremely crowded, dare I say sold out. Um And so I actually could not get to the bar. Like even if we had, I think even when there was a little break, I could not get from the stage to the bar because it was so full of fans. Shout out to Lavender Country and Paisley Fields and Austin Lucas for a very successful tour. So I was like, I think I had a beer in my hand and I just said like, hey, could anyone grab me a drink? And I had seven drinks and the most chaotic part was that they were all different drinks. Like one person (laughs) brought me a mixed cocktail Multiple people brought me different types of beer. The cool thing about that was like at the end of the show, I was able to be like an open bar for my loved ones. Like friends of mine were like, oh, maybe I'll get a drink. And I was like, I have this rum and Coke or I have this truly seltzer or I have this IPA or I have this Sierra Nevada. Like I had a variety of drinks to hand out. My solution for that would be like for you to be on stage and be like, hey, guy in the hat, can you get me like point out a specific person? But if they can't, physically get to the bar because there's too many people it's just not possible wait that's actually really fun i love the idea of putting somebody else on the spot because when you're performing it's like people are looking at you 
and then you turn it around on them. Like, hey, you. I find that people love attention. Are you contributing to this? Bring me a drink. Hey, you over there. Hey, you fella. Hey, hey, cowboy. Statistically, <laughs> you make more money than I do because of your gender <laughs> and your height. Bring me a drink. Uh, wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of that, do you want to talk about Ken Yates? I do. I had never met him before I did this interview, and then a few days after, he showed up at my house for a stoop beer. It was very fun. Yeah, he's a great guy. Ken grew up in the college town of London, Ontario, and I like to think of him as Canada's next top model, by which I mean he is wonderfully talented, disarmingly nice, and from Canada, obviously. He is a Berklee College of Music graduate, and I took the opportunity to ask him about that experience, sort of the why would somebody go to music school? What were you hoping to gain? What did you actually get out of it? All of these things are fascinating to me whenever we have a guest that is a conservatory graduate. Ken's answers were really interesting. And one takeaway that I got from his story of going to Berkeley is that like even some of the most talented, most well-prepared people feel like they have no idea what they're doing and are looking to their friends to be like, okay, how are you planning out your life? Ken had a breakout album in 2016 called Huntsville, which earned him the Emerging Artist of the Year Award at the Canadian Folk Music Awards. A huge honor, very competitive. And also, this was a defining moment where Ken was kind of externally told, you are a folk artist. So we got a chance to talk about what that means and what the genre means to him. Ken's album, Quiet Talkers, which came out in 2020, is so beautiful. That was my introduction to his music. Obviously, because of the release date, instead of touring in support of that album, he did a bunch of COVID-era online shows. And as an onlooker, I was so impressed with how gracious and level-headed he was about basically touring online only. And just like how generous he was with his audience in spite of the crappy circumstances. And he has this emotional awareness and level-headedness and grace that make him a really interesting writer. And that kind of leads us to the big cathartic project of Cerulean, which is his new 2022 album that we spent a lot of our time talking about in the interview. Cerulean is such a gorgeous album, so impeccably written, and it bridges the gap between folk and indie rock between skepticism and hope, between the pain of losing someone and the acceptance of the circumstances around you. Um, It has a distinct groove, a distinct sound, and it features vocals from Americana stars like Kathleen Edwards, Liz Longley, and Katie Pruitt. And it has some of the prettiest production that I've heard all year. So Ken was just a joy to talk with and we got to talk about pets and home offices and a lot of other fun stuff. So he's a really, really cool songwriter, and I think you're going to love this album. All right, let's take a listen to a song from his latest record. This is Consolation Prize featuring Katie Pruitt, known Catholic lesbian Katie Pruitt. She has her own podcast about being Catholic. Really? Yes. Known Catholic lesbian. Yes. That's a great album title. Yes. Katie Pruitt, use that idea. It's a free idea. Okay, uh, let's hear it. This is Ken Yates' Consolation Prize, and then we'll get to 
Lizzie's conversation with Ken on Basic Folk. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am Lizzie No, and I am so excited to be here with Ken Yates. Thank you for talking with me, Ken. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. I'm going to jump right in. We were talking off mic about puppies, and we'll probably get back into that later. Yeah. But I want to start with your life and your music. So you grew up in London, Ontario. That's right, yep. My sense is that that's like a university town. Did you have music classes in your school? Were, was there a big music scene there with your friends? Like, set the scene for us. Not really, no. I mean, you're right. It's definitely, it's a university town. There's a big university there. And that's really, that's really about it. That's that's all I can re- really say about London. <laughs> um, yeah, it's there's not too much else going on there. Um, I was not, there's not much of a music scene there when I was in high school it's a little bit mm-hmm. better now but it's still kind of a weird town in terms of like a music scene it's still very much like it's kind of in no man's land it's in between it's in between toronto and detroit really so even even okay. artists who are touring don't really stop there a lot um but yeah when i was in high school i really i was really just uh like played guitar in my basement like i didn't have many musician friends um Oh it was gosh. just sort of a thing I did on my own. So how did you get into it? Like, how did you get the idea in your mind? Like, I'm going to be I'm going to be a singer songwriter. Like, where did this come from? Honestly, most of it came from just like pure delusion at that point. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, because <laughs> I had no reference of like how good I was because I just played guitar in my basement. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I knew I loved it. I knew, you know, around like around 17, 18, I knew I wanted to like pursue music. But again, it was mm-hmm. kind of delusional. I had no idea what that meant. I knew I just liked to play guitar and I knew I loved music. And I had never written a song. I wasn't a singer. Um, but I I just had this complete delusion that I wanted to get out of London and I wanted to go to Berkeley College of Music and I knew mm-hmm. nothing about Berkeley in Boston, but I had mentioned it to my parents and obviously looking back now, I, I'm very appreciative for them because I think they thought it would be character building to at least take me down there and audition and, you know, yeah. try try to get a feel for what it might be like to move to the States. Um try to be around you know other musicians and just just go through that process and you know I don't think they'd admit this but I'm pretty sure they didn't think I was going to get in <laughs> so that's incredible no that's I think that's good parenting like even if you're not sure if it's going to work out like doing the like tell your kid to do the thing yeah. at least give it a shot yeah I feel like I ask this I have we've had a few guests who've like gone to music school, who've come on the podcast. And I feel like I asked this of everyone, like, what was your conception of what 
Berkeley was going to do for you. Like some people take the path of just like right out of high school, move to Nashville, start writing songs. Um, but getting your degree is like a very different path. So what was your concept of what that was going to do in your big picture? When I first went there, I, I mean, I really knew nothing about the school. And again, I was just a guitar player. So I think I just mm-hmm. thought that I would go there and I would, I would perfect my guitar skills and I would be a, uh, an amazing guitar player and, you know, meet some people and start a band and, and uh, world, world domination after that. Great. <laughs> Of course. And then I got there and was kind of like, oh, okay. Well, this is my first time being around a whole community of of artists and a lot of them already like very polished and a lot of them knowing what they want to do with their careers, a lot of them like on the mm. production side or the songwriting side or the business side. And here I was just just a basement guitar player having no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so the first few years were actually kind of tough for me because I realized that you know, I was certainly not the best guitar player at the school. There, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's some amazing players who go there, and I bet there were a handful of other people that knew what they were doing on guitar. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and just people who just knew, like they just had a goal, right? Like they knew what they wanted mm-hmm. their careers to look like, and I just didn't really know what that looked like. So the first few years were really just me experimenting, taking different courses, and just figuring out what I wanted to do and. Berkeley's very, um, very jazz heavy at the time it was, I think it's less jazz heavy now, but, um, I took a bunch of like jazz courses and hated that. Um, I took a few like vocal courses and piano courses and just kind of bounced around a little bit. And then, um, your third year at Berkeley is usually where you, you start picking a major. Um, Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) I, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. And, um, just kind of on a whim, I, I took a songwriting course and I said like, well, if I want to, if I actually want to have a future in music, like maybe I should try writing a song. And uh, my my first songwriting class, I just assumed that we would just be, look, be listening to other songs and dissecting what makes songs good mm-hmm. and, you know, learning, learning rhymes and structure and stuff. But the first week, the, the professor was just like, uh, you know, bring in a song next week. And everyone's going to play their song and we're all going to talk about it. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. Oh, my God. I've never written a song. So I spent the next week. What did week, you do? I spent the next week in absolute, like, I was just terrified. And I wrote a really terrible song. Uh, what was it about? I think it was called Flying Bicycle. And mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it was really bad. Like, the, like E.T.? Yeah, like E.T., and I think it was about how I was in a long distance relationship with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. So it worked out. Aww, but I, yeah, I think it was about how, like how I wish I had a bicycle that I could that I could fly. In, in hindsight, it made no sense. Like, why not a plane? <laughs> but, we, yeah. we have the technology now. Yeah, we have the technology. I don't know why it had to be a bicycle. But to my classmates credit, they they were very kind about mm-hmm. it. And we kept doing this exercise of bringing songs in and Mm -hmm. the songs gradually started getting a little bit better. And I started getting a little, a little bit more confident, but it's funny in hindsight that I just kind of took this course on a whim. And, um, cause I don't, who knows if I would have even written a song with, without taking that course, which is kind of crazy looking back. Do you still, um, seek out feedback from people when you're drafting your songs or are you the type of person who like, wants to have it all polished before you bring it to a band or peers? 
Um, I have one person who I who I go to for feedback. That's Brian Dunn, your your friend Brian, Brian Dunn. Dunn. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, okay, we're ten minutes into the interview. I was wondering how long we were going to be able to go before we brought up Brian Dunn. Shout out to Brian Dunn, fellow Berkeley alum and dear friend of mine. When you were talking about like going to Berkeley and meeting people who like really knew what they wanted and knew what they were doing, I was like, that's Brian Dunn to a T. Yes. As soon as absolutely. I met him, I was like, this is the most having their shit together person I've ever met in music. Yes. And Brian was <laughs> like right before, right right when I started writing songs, he was already like, he went to Berkeley for songwriting. He knew mm-hmm. the kind of artist he wanted to be. Um, and I was sort of blown away by his like confidence and, and his drive and his, and, and he was really one of the, one of the first people who were like, Hey man, you're, you're not bad. <laughs> you should, you should keep doing you got this. something going on. Yeah. So yeah. Th- then that's when I really like, I wish I had found these people earlier in my life because I right. think, I think I just hadn't really found the right community up until that mm-hmm. point. So once I found that songwriting community, I was like, Oh, these, these are my people. These, this is where I belong. Dude, I think a lot of people, I mean, we kind of as a culture understand that image of like the the lonely person in their basement making a record at night. I think people don't realize just how many people and how many resources it takes to make an album. Yeah. Um or to put a tour together and like if you don't have a lot of people who are willing to like lend you favors and you get them back the next time, you just don't have a chance. Like you actually have to have, you have to make friends to be able to do anything in music. (laughs) And I, it's crazy. I was so green. I was so like, I had Mm -hmm. no idea what making an album looked like. I didn't know what people did in a studio. Like I just had no idea. And so Brian was one of those people. And then a few other people, um, this, this guy, Joran, who, who wanted to get into Mm -hmm. production, he, he was in one of my classes and he said like, Hey man, I'd like to try and make an EP with you. And, um, I like your stuff. And I was like, okay. And I was just blown away by the process. I was like, you can edit my vocals. Like you can, you can take two different takes and put them together. Like I was, I had no clue. That's actually not a confirmed fact. And for any of the listeners (laughs) who might be wondering if any of the Lizzie No albums yes. have had vocal edits. They never have. Right. I do it all in one take. Yeah, no, there's I no do too now. And there's no comping. Yeah, yeah no just comping. one take. Just one take of everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how did you make your way from that point to recording 23, your first album? Uh, so some of the songs that were on that first EP ended up on, on mm-hmm. 23. So I did that with the same with the same producer, Joran. Cool. We all moved to New York uh, after graduating. We moved to Greenpoint. Uh, there was me and three other songwriter kids from Berkeley who all wanted to be pop songwriters. It was terrible. Wow. It was a terrible environment to live in uh, as like a, a folk singer songwriter. Um, I wanted to um, talk about Huntsville which is such a great album and really like if I'm if I'm kind of reading the historical record correctly like set you on this incredible upward trajectory where you were named best new artist at the Canadian Folk Music Awards was that around the time that you realized people were calling you a folk artist like what how did you conceptualize your genre at that time in 2016 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think so. I think Huntsville is probably my folkiest album. And mm -hmm. in hindsight, it's kind of funny that it's so folky because I never really thought of myself as a folk artist. Um, right. But I think it was just the nature of my lifestyle at the moment, which was that that's when I really started hitting the road hard and trying to trying to make a living at, you know, being a being a full time artist. And the doors that were available to me at the time were doing like a lot of private shows like house concerts and. Sure. Um, you know, living room shows. And, and that was how I was surviving and making money. And I think in a weird way, a lot of those shows kind of dictated the style of the music in, in, a, in a strange yes. way. Like I would have loved to tour with a band, but I, it just didn't financially make sense. So it was mm -hmm. just me driving around with my acoustic guitar and playing in living rooms. And, um, and I think the songs kind of catered to that kind of audience after a while. Um, which is funny thinking back because I was never, you know, folk music wasn't really the genre that I that I listened to like growing up. Um, mm -hmm. So, what did you listen to more than anything? You know, I was into like Radiohead, and mm -hmm. I was into. I mean, I was into like Sufjan Stevens, which I guess like has a has a folky yeah, sure. folky influence to it. So I was, you know, I was certainly like influenced by some of that folkiness, but never the like hardcore folkies <laughs> you know <Yeah>. of like <laughs> we all know hardcore folkies and i'm scared of them no we love them <laughs> yeah. we love all hardcore folkies um i love them too and softcore folkies yes yes absolutely um <laughs> but yeah looking back at writing huntsville it's it was strange to me because i was trying to write songs like the wreck of the edmund fitzgerald or something like i was trying to i was yeah. trying to take stories and, and write them um like you know, look just from looking at a newspaper or something, you know. So yeah, which I still I still love a lot of those songs on on that record, mm -hmm. but I I'm definitely confused why it ended up so folky. But I think it was just the nature of my of my circumstance at that time. How do you think the reception of that album like steered where you went from there? Well, I mean, it definitely put me in the like white guy with an acoustic guitar category, which yeah. you know it isn't isn't a bad place to be and. Um, and, you know, it, that was just my audience became kind of those those older, older folkies. And um, mm -hmm. but I got I got really burnt out of doing those living room shows. Um, me and Brian were touring a lot together at the time and doing the, and kind of joining forces and, and booking those mm -hmm. kinds of shows together. And both of us just got completely burnt out of, of that kind of show. And what do you think was what do you think is hard about it? Because I have my own ideas having done some of those shows, but I'm yeah. curious what your experience was like. I think after a while, it started feeling like babysitting. <laughs> yeah. It started feeling like I was even because, you know, when you're playing in a living room to a bunch of people, like you can't, you've got to engage with them and you've got to tell stories and you've got to be, and a lot of them have never heard you before. So you're just trying to mm -hmm. keep them engaged in this very strange setting. And I found myself getting tired of hearing myself talk. Like I was, I was pandering to them. I felt like I was pandering. I felt yeah. like... I felt like the songs I was writing were aimed at at these types of audiences. I even wrote like I had songs that I wrote about house concert experiences. And I think I just got a little I felt like I was not really being myself. I think, you mm -hmm. know, and I also learned that after a while, like I thought that I was building something where really like those shows were were great to make money and to, and to make a living. But um, it wasn't translating into people coming to shows at like a venue, you know, it was, they right. weren't becoming like followers or fans. 
they were just, you know, they were people's neighbors from down the street that they happened to invite, <laughs> right? So I, I didn't, I just didn't feel like it was leading to anywhere. I just, so there were a few years where it just felt like I was spinning my wheels a little bit. And at first yeah. it was great because I was making money and I felt like I was mm-hmm. doing it, you know, and we were traveling all over the country. So I felt like, you know, I was real troubadour. I was really doing it. And then a few years later, it was just kind of like, well, I don't know. I don't know where this is all leading. So, you know, yeah. I, I too many to... windows and not enough doors. Yeah, exactly. Someone yeah. once said, yes, a wise listeners, man. it was Ken that said it. <laughs> I actually had a thought about that song because the first time I listened to it, um, too many windows, beautiful song off the Huntsville album. Um, I was a little bit stoned. And <laughs> what I heard was too many nice guys, not enough stars. Nice guys. Yeah. Instead of too many night skies. Yeah. So I pictured like a music video and you can you can use this. This is a free idea to you. Sweet. You, like imagine you are a talent agent who works in an open plan office that's like surrounded by glass. So there's way too many windows and not enough doors. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at the headshots that came in and it's too many nice guys and not enough stars. Like you're looking for the next Brad Pitt. Right. Um, and all you're getting is that Parks and Rec guy just that nobody likes anymore. Just a bunch of nice anymore. guys. Yeah. 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 Just a bunch of nice guys. You know, story of my life. That's great. I'm going to take that. I never made a video for that song. So, you know, it's not too late. Not too late. (laughs) I can't help because I don't know how to do anything related to a music video, but the concept is yours for free. Yeah. We'll make sure. Um, (laughs) I was, I was hoping you'd be game to do like a little bit of a case study because I've been listening really intently to the way that you put songs together. Um, and I think it's really, really interesting. Like, if we can jump into Quiet Talkers, which yeah. came out in 2020. One of my favorite songs is Two Wrongs. Um, there's like a really tricky use of homophones with the number two, the adverb two. But I think what's really remarkable about that song and a lot of the songs on that on that album are how you kind of just say the really hard thing, say the direct thing without it sounding cliche. So like, as an example, there's a lyric that goes, when my life went off the tracks, I had a panic attack. You still had my back. Your loving was easy. And that really struck me because there are a lot of people that are, I think, trying to do that, but coming across really schmaltzy, a little bit fake. But there's something very authentic about the way that that's phrased. So how do you write a song like that? How do you know when you've said enough, but not over embellished? Do you write and rewrite? Do you edit a lot? Like, walk me through the lyrics, writing lyrics like that. Yeah, I do a lot of editing. Um, It's interesting Mm -hmm. that you brought up that song because that's one of the only songs where when I listen back, I do almost cringe a little bit thinking that it maybe is borderlining, you know, it's borderline on the cliche there. I'm really walking a fine line with that one. Um, I think you're good. Okay. But that's (laughs) just one woman's opinion. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I feel, I feel, I feel better now. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I do a lot of editing. I think with that album, with quiet talkers and with the new one, um, I always found that I tried to be too tricky with my songwriting. Um, I always tried to have that like really tricky turn of phrase at Mm -hmm. at the end of the chorus or something. And it's something that I've been trying to get away from because it does kind of walk that line on being cliche. Um, so Mm -hmm. I, I mostly just try to turn the editor's brain off when I'm writing and then go back mm-hmm. to the lyrics after and and 
tweak away as much as possible and give myself some space from it. Like I take a, a mm-hmm. I just spend a lot of time on lyrics. Like I have, I usually have the song pretty quickly, and then I, I just have to keep stepping away and coming back to it. Um, but yeah, that was one in particular. Where I was like, I think I'm, I'm think I'm walking that line here. So. I have one more question before we dig into the new album, Cerulean. Um, you did a lot of online shows, live streams during 2020, and you had like just put a new album out and never got a chance to like tour it that year, like a lot of artists. Like all the interviews I've read that you did from that time, you were a total class act, full of gratitude and perspective. But like, <laughs> what was it really like to release? an album with all that goes into it and then perform online. Like, what did that feel like? Oh, it sucked. It was terrible. Yeah. No, I hated it. <laughs> I'm glad that I came across as, as pretty uh, yeah. positive, but, uh, no, it, it's, uh, it's still like, I still think about it. I just think about that record I put out in 2020 was, was mm-hmm. pretty good for the most part. And yeah. I feel like it didn't really have a life and, I would have loved to given it more of a life and hopefully it still will have one. Like I'm realizing now that I'm going back out on the, out on the road that um, people are hearing these songs for the first time. And I almost forgot, like I'll play songs from quiet talkers and be like, Oh, I've never played this in this city before. And people, Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, that's exciting. Like people, you know, realizing that, Oh yeah, people were listening to this record. I just maybe didn't experience that firsthand because if you're not playing live you can't really see the music working in real time right like you're just you're not getting direct feedback you're getting some feedback from social media but you're not getting that direct feedback right and I always find that song that I perform songs differently over time as I get feedback from audiences and it's interesting that a a record like Quiet Talkers could just be sort of frozen in time Mm -hmm. and not get that like journey of changing what the songs sound like live that's really interesting i'll be i hope i get to see you live and i would be interested to see what it is like to see those songs now when they like sat in the internet for two years (laughs) yeah well it's been it's been kind of exciting because i am kind of reworking how i would play them because i never played them live whereas like huntsville i had played those Mm -hmm. songs on the road for like years before i recorded them so they were very much like I play them a specific way every single time. Whereas these two new records, I'm still kind of figuring out how to, how to play them. And I play them differently every night it feels like, and that's kind of Mm -hmm. exciting and it's kind of fun. And that was a fun part of making them too, is just not having, you know, hammering them live every night and it being a bit more fresh and a bit more like just figuring out like different guitar parts and stuff. And yeah. um, Yeah. So that's, it's been, it's been kind of, kind of nice to, to get back out there and ho- I mean hopefully the new one will have a life too because it, it very much still feels like a uh, pandemic record but yikes yeah. yes okay <laughs> let's talk about it let's talk about Cerulean this great new album first of all like just talking about that recording process it was a different scenario than mm-hmm. your previous records correct like you were recording this remotely can you talk us through like what that actually looks like making an album when the producer is not in the same room with you yeah, so Jim and I, Jim Bryson, who who's done mm-hmm. the last three records, he did Huntsville, Quiet Talkers, and Cerulean, and um, we found a few days in between lockdowns here in Ontario. He lives about uh, four hours east of me. Uh, he's in Ottawa area, and uh, so we found a few days to get in his studio um, with a band and just get the basic tracks uh, recorded, and then 
he basically gave me a vocal mic to bring home and he gave me some recording gear and was like, hey, you can try to do all the vocals and some guitar stuff from home. And I really had no knowledge of recording myself. Um, but I mean, wow. I, you know, I could make demos and stuff, but I mm-hmm. I never thought I could make like studio quality recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you learn to record your voice at home? So just with Jim's help and the internet, mm-hmm. I kind of figured it out and I set up a closet and kind of turned it into a little vocal booth and uh, mm-hmm. bought some more gear. And um, actually it was kind of, it was kind of enjoyable figuring all that out. And cool. uh, yeah, I call the, I call the closet, I call it the pain cave. I would go in there every night. My wife and I would like finish dinner and I'd be like, all right, going up to the pain cave. You won't see me again tonight. And I would just do like 20 takes of a song and then yikes you know spend the rest of the night editing it well not editing as you said i mean just listening to the one the one perfect vocal take but (laughs) just the one just it all happens all at once folks yeah that's the one part of making an album that's completely seamless yeah um so i read that you when did you move didn't you move to did you move to a new place that had a home office yeah we moved about a year ago to out to the country uh from toronto so it reminded me of how, in a room of one's own, Virginia Woolf says that intellectual freedom depends upon material conditions. And I would love for you to describe for our listeners, what does your home office look like? And how has it changed how you work? Yeah, I mean, my home office, which I call a studio, which nobody else would call a studio because it is not. It's basically just a room full of random stuff, which you're looking at right mm-hmm. now. Um, well, I live in Brooklyn. I would describe it as a studio for yeah. sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love having this space. It's been a total game changer um, mm-hmm. just to like leave the mic set up and leave everything on and to be able to sit down and and everything's on when you're when you're feeling creative. Whereas I used to have to kind of pull everything out of a closet, set it up and mm-hmm. put it away. And honestly, it's I'm kind of amazed at how I wrote songs in like past conditions because I would just have to find little times little periods where I could write um whereas now I have a you know a space I can go to and and spend a lot of time in here uh so that's been it's been a game changer honestly and I've learned a lot about recording myself and um you know my my demos are sounding better and I think I can actually like make somewhat studio quality things from here so it's kind of it's kind of been fun. I would describe the vocal recording on Cerulean as studio quality at the very least. Thank you. I'm glad to hear um, it. <laughs> I, I read a really interesting, was it an interview or a quote um, in your bio where you said, this is the first time that I've made a record where I feel like the songs were going to be written whether I wanted to release an album or not. I was writing because I needed to. I never would have described songwriting as a cathartic process in the past. It was just something I liked to do. So when did you start writing this group of songs? And when did it become clear that an album was taking shape? Yeah, so I um, I started writing this record basically right at the start of the pandemic. So yeah, mm-hmm. like March 2020. Yeah, like, you know, like that quote says, I think... I had only written in the past when I was in a good mood. Like anytime I was in a terrible mood, I found I could never write anything. That's not mm-hmm. when when the creative juices were flowing. They were always flowing when I was in like a good headspace, even though I was writing pretty dark stuff. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Whereas this record, I found it hard to write when the pandemic started because I was in a very dark place. And, 
you know, I was going through some tough family stuff. My mom was sick. And um, so I couldn't write at all because I was just in this kind of really, really bad space. But, you know, like I was mentioning before, I just kind of started working through some of that stuff, like actually, mm-hmm. um, actually, you know, facing up to some of <laughs> some of my inner darkness for the first time, maybe. Yes, thank you. Um, that was applause. Yep. People can't see me. It's an audio medium. <laughs> Yeah, which I think a lot of people were doing over the pandemic, right? It's like, (laughs) there's no distraction from it. I think I realized a lot of the touring I had done the past few years were just a way to like feel busy and to avoid Mm. uh, certain things, (laughs) certain certain Mm -hmm. darknesses going on. And uh, so I just, I had nothing but time to face it. And the songs started coming. And once they, once that started flowing, they, I wrote them all within a three or four month period and and wow. I knew yeah I knew within a couple of months that I had another album taking shape and I also didn't really want to wait to make it because I felt like those few months were such an important snapshot of what I was going through and um the the songs themselves on Cerulean are um basically the track list is in order of how I wrote them too so it's kind of this mm-hmm. timeline of 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 where I was at that point so I felt like I needed to well, one, I felt like I needed to do something. So I was like, well, I have these songs, so I've got to, I got to make them. But it was also, it was a revelation to know that I wasn't just making songs to make a record, to put out, to, you know, make a living. It was like, oh, this is just what I do, I think. I think I just, I, mm. I write songs. You know, they would be written whether I I wanted to put out an album or not. So that was, that was a interesting time for me, just figuring out like, this is, this is just kind of what I do. Like these, I had no control. These songs would have been written. So it was kind of, right. kind of a revelation for me. Yeah. It was just a state of being mm-hmm. rather than like a goal oriented yeah. activity. Yeah. Which I think makes for better songs in my honest opinion. I think because I turned off that side of my brain, which was like, you know, when you're an emerging artist, I'm doing air quotes because mm-hmm. I've been emerging for 12 years. Um, we're all emerging. We're all emerging. We are all yeah. emerging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, when you're an emerging artist, sometimes it feels like every song you write needs to be the one that gets you mm-hmm. noticed, right? So I definitely struggle with that with Quiet Talkers, just thinking like there's songs on there that I thought like, could this be a could this be like a pop hit? Like, which is insane that I was thinking that, but. Um, there's songs on there that it's I'd like to roommates. take back. Yeah, it's those roommates, exactly. <laughs> and I can't believe I was even thinking, like having that thought, right? Um, yeah. There's a song called uh, uh, There's a song called Anchor and Sail on on mm-hmm. Quiet Talkers, which I think is a, oh, that's such a pretty. song. It's a nice song, but I, I yeah. you know, it's it's it makes me cringe a little bit just thinking about what I thought of it. I thought like. Oh, we'll put it at the back of the record and it's kind of this like pop song that maybe people will find and be like, oh, that's a hit. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, I, you know what? That can that can still happen. It's true. I wish it's you true. the millions that you deserve from that track. Thank you. Um, can you talk me through the, the decision to sequence the songs in the order they were written? Because that is unusual and it really makes for an interesting story on the album yeah it wasn't intentional I think um we recorded the songs kind of out of order and then once I was making the track list I realized that I had made it that way um Mm -hmm. so it was completely unintentional but um once I kind of 
I really didn't know what the al- what the album was about until it was till we had finished recording and until uh, like once I started uh, making a track listing and, and thinking about what the overall theme was, I kind of went like, oh, okay, well, this is my <laughs> this is kind of a timeline of what I was going through, um, and I I don't think I knew it at the time when I was writing it. Um, so yeah, just it just kind of happened like that. a blueprint in your mind of how you wanted the album to sound before you went into the studio or did it did a lot of it happen in those few like sessions with the band that you were able to do yeah I had a pretty good idea of how I wanted it to sound I felt like with quiet talkers I had one foot still in the folky singer songwriter world and one Mm -hmm. foot uh stepping forward into more of this kind of indie folk territory if mm-hmm. if you if you know for lack of better word um and so I knew I kind of wanted to keep going with that kind of more indie direction and I was writing a lot of the new songs on electric guitar so that I think they naturally um stepped away from from the folkiness and but that was definitely a deliberate thing with with Jim I, I definitely wanted it to be less folky and more full band and more more guitars, more synths, more more of everything. Mm-hmm. I think with Huntsville, I kind of held Jim back because I had been playing those songs solo for so long. I was like, okay, we don't need to add much to it. And anytime mm-hmm. he got a little little crazy with synths and stuff, I was <laughs> like, whoa, slow it down there, buddy. Um, I used to have a no synths rule because I was afraid I'd be kicked out of the folk club. Yeah, and now right. that is out the window. Oh, I was just afraid that it would totally change the sound of my music, which is yeah. crazy in hindsight. And that's the beauty of working with a producer, uh, you know, more time, like two or three times is um, I knew that no matter how much stuff we added, how many synths and how many, you know, electronic drums and how many we yeah. put congas on this album. Like I knew that Hello. it was still going to sound like me. They're my songs. It is me singing them and it's me playing them. So I could literally put you know anything on these songs and it would not be a complete diversion from from what I've been doing my whole life right yeah one thing that really stands out to me with this album is that like it has some really confessional and intimate um storytelling but the whole thing grooves and I want to know like how did you build that rhythm section and was that a part of your like folk departure talk me through the movement of it yeah I think I was trying to make a record, even though the theme was very dark, lyrically it was very dark. I wanted to make a record that I could also put on, you know, when I'm making dinner, you know, (laughs) which I don't know if it is a record people will put on when they're making dinner. But I find the records that I'm drawn to, even if they have heavy subject matter, I want them to sonically sound a certain way. Like I kind of want to be put in that world and not have too much variation, I guess, like. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find a good way to describe this, but um, well, no, that makes sense because it's somewhere in between, like you listen alone in headphones, like sitting on the bus, mm-hmm. and like a whole group of people would be wildly dancing. Like the dinner making record is a record that grooves a little bit, and you can sort of move your hips a little bit yeah. while while doing something else. <laughs> right. So it's like a moderate groove yeah I guess I find that even some of my favorite songwriters like I don't put their records on because you know you've got the loud song you've got the rocker and then you've Mm -hmm. got the really quiet acoustic ballad and I I just find that variation sometimes bothers me whereas at the time I was listening to a lot of like Kurt Vile 
is listening to a lot of war oh, on yeah. drugs. Where war on drugs. They just kind of put you in this space mm-hmm. and you never leave the space. And it's yes. just kind of this steady groove that I love. And the weather station is that way as well. Yeah, like station. you put on a weather station album. And it's just like you could just walk sort of mindlessly and yeah. soulfully for like an hour. Yeah, I love her so much. And I've been listening she's to this great. guy, Lee Fullback. Do you ever listen to him? Oh, he's yeah. fantastic. I put on his record so much because it sounds like they literally just pressed record and just played the whole mm-hmm. album. And I just love being in that space with them. And so it was it was a little bit conscious. There were songs like, um, like Consolation Prize from mm-hmm. the new record that... Featuring Katie Pruitt. Featuring Katie Pruitt. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. And... Uh, I remember the band being like, okay, I'm thinking no drums for this or maybe just like a kick drum or whatever. And I was like, no, let's just, let's keep the drums in the whole no. thing. Let's just keep it going. We can always take the drums out, which we mm-hmm. did on a couple of songs. We took drums out on uh, Best of the Broken Things. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I just kind of wanted that. I, I didn't want that song to just be like, okay, here's the quiet ballad that the everyone's going to have to turn up when that song comes on because it's so much quieter than the others, right? Like it's it's, so annoying. it's almost a volume thing for me. It's just like I don't want to yeah. have to change the dial too much, right? No, whether literally or spiritually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk about, you know, the darkness on the record. Like you, you're talking a lot about what it was like to watch your mom's health decline. That's extremely intimate. I would find it maybe almost impossible to talk about. So did you ever have reservations about like taking something that's so personal um and sharing it with strangers yeah honestly it was hard to talk about this record at first and that's where the Mm -hmm. like actual real therapy kind of helped me kind of parse through talking about it (laughs) um Mm -hmm. which i started doing basically after i finished this record but hey good for you thanks therapy is great it's 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 great everybody should do it even if you mm-hmm. think you don't need it, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's very beneficial, and it's allowing yeah. me to talk about it right now. To be honest, because otherwise I wouldn't mm-hmm. really know even how to how to talk about it. Um, but what's I think what's interesting is if I hadn't told you about like the grief I was going through with this record, you wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily know that's what I was going through because the songs are very much just looking inward mm-hmm. at myself and. There were songs that I wrote about my mom directly. Those songs didn't make it because those ones were like, mm. oh, I don't think I can put this. I don't think I can put this on the record. And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they will. Hopefully I will feel comfortable releasing them at some point. But yeah. at that moment, I was like, you know what? I think these ones are just for me. I'm just going to keep these ones for now. No one else is going to hear them. So other than those songs, this record's very much just... Um, basically just trying to control my own feelings like saying mm-hmm. because I was in such a like such a dark place and uh I couldn't really control much of my own surroundings so it was just kind of like how can I better myself how can I not be mm-hmm. such like a miserable piece of shit all the time <laughs> right because <laughs> I was like my wife was work still working 10 hour days and she was a ray of positivity all the time and I felt like oh I was just like this cloud of darkness every day <laughs> That was just like trying to, you know, both with just having not much to do because of the pandemic and my mom and everything. I just felt like I was just bringing people down all the time and bringing myself down all the time. So I think these songs were just me saying like, come on, dude, like you you've got it pretty good here. Like, let's 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 zoom out a little bit and look Mm -hmm. at a lot of good things in your life. And how can 
how can we get to a place where we start appreciating those things a little bit more? And I think the album does end up in a very positive, appreciative place. I've done a couple interviews where people have been like, whoa, dude, this album's fucking dark. But I actually feel like songs from Quiet Talkers were were darker than this record because I think this record was me um, just searching for the light, you know? Um, mm-hmm. instead of instead of running towards the darkness, which I feel like I used to do a lot more in my songwriting. This one was trying to trying to, you know, find the light. So to me, it's Ooh. actually very positive. Um, but yeah, so I, <laughs> really, yeah, you talk about the apocalypse a lot yeah. on this album, but kind of playfully, like it, there's that lyric, the future is dead and there's no looking back. How are you thinking about the future? I mean, since 2020, because it sounds like, you went from a place of like, let's dig down deep into some darkness to, oh shit, we're in the darkness. How do we find mm-hmm. our way out? So with that in mind, like, are you still, are you still like an end times apocalyptic minded person? <laughs> I mean, a little bit. It's hard not to be yeah. with, with sure. the way the world is right now mm-hmm. in multiple factors, right? It's just, and that's what the future is dead is sort of about. It's just like, mm-hmm. we don't even know how the world's going to end, but we all kind of feel like it might be coming. Uh, mm-hmm. But it could be multiple different things. But I think especially those first two ap- apocalyptic songs on the record, they kind of get to this place of acceptance, which is like, you know, again, we can't control the impending doom that's coming. We can only control mm-hmm. our own environment and how we interact with the people in our lives and how sure. we appreciate the people in our lives. And so, you know, the songs like The Big One or The Future is Dead, I do think they get to the place of of acceptance and appreciation for like if we're going to go out we we're going to we're going to go mm-hmm. out together, you know. I don't want to have any regrets. <laughs> arm in arm. Yeah. Into the void. Yeah. So I feel, you know, I feel like even though I still have a doomsday mentality, it's it's still more it comes from a place of uh you know, at least trying to trying to uh go out, you know, go out find the high ground and go out on a on a high note, you know. <laughs> Yeah. That makes sense. Um, looking into the future, if you had to guess, maybe you already have some idea. What do you think your next record is going to sound like? Normally, I would have written a bunch of songs by now, by the time like mm-hmm. the album just came out a month ago. And normally, I'd already have a handful of songs for the next one. I have zero. So uh, that's the first time I've been in that situation. So that's really interesting. Oh my gosh. Are you panicking? Are you feeling like free? Are you, what's, sorry to plant even the thought of, no. <laughs> of anxiety, but I just, since we do the same thing for a living, like whenever I have a period where I'm not writing, I'm like, well, the well has gone dry. Yeah. Better go to get, better go to grad school right. for something I don't care about. <laughs> like, what's your plan? It's a very good question. There's definitely some anxiety. Um, I think the anxiety is more from just like, if this record goes nowhere and doesn't have a life like Quiet Talkers did, I need to come up with more songs very quickly, but I'm hoping <laughs> that this record will have a bit of a longer life that I, you know, I'll have some time because I know that the, you know, I know the river will start flowing eventually. And when it does, it'll, you know, it'll, it'll happen fast. And in a way, I'm hoping that it's a good thing that I haven't, that I'm still very much in, in the world of Cerulean and I haven't really moved on from it yet. I think that'll probably bode well for, for the mm-hmm. next batch of songs. I just don't think I'm quite ready to to tackle them yet. I'm finding that I have a lot of music written, but I 
I, I don't have lyrics for anything yet. I'm finding the lyrics mm. are not really coming yet, which to me tells me like I should I should just not force it. I should just kind of yeah, you know, let it let it wait until until they come right because yeah, I think staying in the present uh, artistic moment is a gift you give your future self because when you rush it, you end up having to undo a lot of half-assed yeah, stuff. Absolutely. So it's like an act of faith in your future creativity to just let it come when it comes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I always have gone through dry periods. They just haven't mm-hmm. quite been this dry, but I, mm-hmm. I have faith. <laughs> I have faith that the, the songs so will, will return at some point. <laughs> and enjoy Cerulean because it's a, a beautiful record. And I, I mean, a lot of the reviews are saying this, but I also want to say it, that it's like, it's a courageous and fun record and it sounds phenomenal. Oh, thank um, you. Ken Yates, you've been, a great guest, a fascinating guest. Would you be willing to do a brief lightning round yeah. to close out our interview where you don't think too hard and you just answer a few questions based on gut alone? Let's do it. Okay. Jeans or sweatpants? Jeans. What is your go-to pre-show drink? Ooh, uh, uh, whiskey. <laughs> what type? Uh, bourbon. Great. What is one song you wish you had written? Brian Dunn's I Hope I Can Make It to the Show I love that song so much That's on my list as well That is a great Another Brian shout out Sorry Brian (laughs) Hey Brian Um, Action, comedy, drama, or romance? Action I love action movies I'm the same Um, What is one snack you always need to have in the tour van? Uh, Triscuits I love Triscuits Yeah Big Triscuits fan. Fibrous. My wife is a celiac, so we can't have them in the house because oh. they've got gluten in Contraband. them. Contraband. Yeah, so <laughs> out on the road, it's just nothing but Triscuits. <laughs> Wild. Um, planes, trains, or automobiles? Automobiles. I like the freedom of the car. Cool. What do you want done with your body when you die? Ooh, uh, uh, cremated and, and spread in, in a lake somewhere. Oh, nice. And what's one secret that Kathleen Edwards is keeping from the world? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, I don't actually know Kathleen that well, but uh, <laughs> so okay, I don't well, know I, any of her secrets. She, was, she featured on your album, and I love her so much that I was trying to catch you off guard yeah. and get you to reveal some spicy secret that we could use as like a basic folk scoop. I don't um, think I have Shout any. out to Kathleen. So, yeah. She did a she did such a cool feature on your album. Yes, I she's great. She's the best. I wish I had more of her secrets, but I don't. So your secrets okay, are we'll safe, get Kathleen. There. <laughs> Ken, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Everybody go buy the album Cerulean and go see Ken on tour. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. And speaking of grace, Lizzie, today's a special day. It's your sister's birthday. And her name is Claire. That's true. Claire Eleanor Quinlan, happy birthday to you. You're the best sister in the universe. Yes. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.